Hello and welcome to Boothcast. On Boothcast, I interview people about sport and business and the winning mindset. Boothcast is brought to you by Booth Training, your one-stop solution to paddle training. And today I have Austin Kiefer on the line from the US, from San Diego. Uh, Austin is a national champion in surf ski paddling. He has also been the only paddler to place on the podium from America in the doctor, which is one of the unofficial world championships of our sport. So thanks, Austin, for coming on. Oh, man, such a pleasure. I've watched all of your, uh, your boothcast so far, so it's an extreme honor to be uh, you know, one of the subjects now. Yeah, it's awesome. It's been such a cool thing to start and actually have people like so pumped about it and like texting me and that just like they're really keen to hear these stories. So I'm keen to hear them as well. So it's, it's a great. No, man, it's, it's incredible. It's like I've been stuck in my house and all of a sudden I get these incredible stories from ocean sports athletes from around the world. And, you know, you're asking them incredible questions and getting to the, you know, to the bottom of their story and what drives them and motivates them. So it's, uh, it's such an honor to be part of that narrative. So, yeah, thanks yeah. for having me on. No worries. And um, well, let's hear a bit about your story. I know you're from North Carolina. You, you did a bit of whitewater paddling and now you're doing surf ski, but let us know how it all started. Yeah, great question. I think uh, to kind of rewind to the beginning of sport for me was, like you said, in whitewater kayaking. So for those of you who don't know, sport of whitewater slalom kayaking is essentially you take a quarter mile or I guess it would be, um, you know, um, half meters. Yeah. yeah, 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 something like that. Half K of of river or white water, and then you set up a a course designated by gates hanging down, and you are supposed to navigate through the course as quickly as possible without incurring any penalties and touching any of the gates. And it's like a time trial event, so everyone goes down the course one at a time. Um, and I was exposed to it super early on. I started when I was twelve. And I, you know, I was doing a lot of other things. I thought for sure I was going to be an NBA star. So, you know, I played middle school basketball. So that's always a dream. And uh, I was kind of playing around with kayaking, got into a club, which was incredible club local in Asheville, where I'm originally from. And ironically, it was, I broke my leg really severely playing basketball. Um, and I had to have like a, a hip high cast for six months. So I was totally laid up and I realized sitting on a chair as, you know, a young, <laughs> very energy high male that I was extremely missing sport and activity in my life. So I, I, I vowed that when I healed up and I was able to rehab my leg, I was going to, I was going to do sport of some kind in my life and it was going to be a substantial part of my life. And so I rehab my leg and I realized you know, I could start kayaking right away because slalom is more you're kind of in the boat, but it's not a whole lot of leg drive. There's not a whole lot of leg movement. So I could start right away kayaking and be at a pretty good level or I could, you know, do another six months of rehab before I could jump again, seriously. So I was like, whatever, kayaking, let's do it. And uh, kind of never looked back. Um, spent, oh man, 12 years doing whitewater kayaking. I had the dream of going to the Olympics. So I tried out for the 2008 and 2012 trials. Um, ultimately though, just wasn't for me. I was a lot of passion and maybe not the most skill, but, uh, it was, it was a sport that I loved so much. And there were some incredible people and coaches and, and personalities that I got to, to meet and learn from along the way. So looking back at it now that I've had a little distance, it's a, uh, it's a journey. I'm really glad that I went on, but it was, uh, 
you know, it was ultimately what got me started in, in sport, but not necessarily um, maybe what I was meant to do. <laughs> yeah. So, so coming from North Carolina, is it a place where, would you say, where, where are parts in um, North Carolina where you're from? Yeah, so it's a really long state. So I am from the mountains, like the western side of the state. It's for the okay. people who don't know the U.S., it's the southeast of the U.S., yep. And North Carolina has some coastal uh, land. That's where you do the Carolina Cup. Yeah, and that's how I know it. Yeah, famous beaches and and coastline of North Carolina. But it's also like if you drive east to west, it's like nine hours across the state. Yeah. Um, so there's I lived in the in the mountains, very far west. So like an eight hour drive from the coast of North Carolina up in the mountains, but there are a lot of incredible rivers up there. So that's where I got yeah, started. Yeah. I was that. trying, I was trying to work out where you did the whitewater paddling. Cause I was like, I thought that North Carolina is quite flat, but if it's, if it's nine hours across then it is quite big and it's obviously going to be different yeah. terrain, but you see, so, yeah. so like that you had like, is it like, um, uh, not Arctic, um, like water coming down from the mountains? Is it? Is that where you're sort of coming down from, or is it like streams, or how's it? How's it work over there? Yeah, it's, the kind of, it's more like streams. We've got a mountain range that runs through the western part of North Carolina called the Appalachian Mountains. Um, yeah. But they're like they're not like the Rockies. They're not like these incredible, you know, glacier-capped, snowy mountains. They're more. Yeah. Um, kind of like, you know, weathered from millennia of, of, you know, turning of the world. So they're much more stunted, smaller mountains. Okay. But uh, I don't know exactly much about where the, the water comes from. Um, yeah. But there's just because it's a pretty mountainous region, there are a lot of mountain streams, I guess maybe probably largely runoff from rain. And was there a lot of um, paddlers and paddling going on in like North Carolina at that time? Or was it, is it more like you're racing people again over in the West or was it, was it like, do you know how you were going for the Olympic sort of trials yeah. and that sort of thing? Was there, was there a lot of paddlers doing whitewater paddling in the U S there's a pretty famous um, paddling club or like a paddling spot in North Carolina called the Nantahala river and the Nantahala racing club, which okay. is, you know, right in there in North Carolina. Um, and there have been a lot of amazing champions, who have trained there over the years. And so I was very lucky to live very close to a place with a lot of pedigree. Um, so I had in the, the Nantahala like, team that I was a member of, I'd say it was like one of the four or five biggest kind of competitive clubs across the country. Um, so we would definitely travel and there were, you know, there was like a club in Washington, DC, um, in, you know, Boulder, not Boulder, Colorado, in uh, Durango, Colorado, they were kind of, spaced all across the u.s but there was a quite a strong contingent in uh in north carolina okay and and so you were so you were obviously built up for 12 years you did like your first stint after probably eight years of doing the whitewater stuff trying out for the olympics um how how did you go in that olympic trial and and what sort of what, what was the difference between say you and the people who made it into the team yeah that's a great question i i think one of the big things was um i the sport is very much a kind of a weight to strength ratio. Um, and it's because there's so much acceleration of you're moving around, but you're starting and stopping your speed. So yeah. it's right all about being able to stop and turn as quickly as possible and then get back up to speed. So I tend to be a little bit on the larger size of athletes, um, like six one. And like at the time I was, like 190, 185 pounds. I don't know what, exactly what that is in kilo. I think yeah, it's so like be like 80. 82 kilos and then about like um, 183 centimeters, something like that. 
yeah, yeah. so yeah, and then so like i i outweighed the next closest um like of the national team and the development team um athletes that i would race against i outweighed the closest one to me by like 13 14 key kilo um yeah like it was like i was definitely on the the heavier and like larger yeah. end of the spectrum um which made it a little challenging and then i think it's also just like it's a I struggled a little bit with the mental side of racing because it's such a short event and it's so prone to blow out. And like any mistake means that your whole season's over, you know, it's like at max, it's like a 90 second run. Um, yeah. And you'll do maybe in like a world cup event, you'll do four runs. You'll do two qualifiers, one semifinal, one final. So that means you're essentially spending six minutes yeah. to determine the whole course of your year, you know, and it's, and it's not out. like, it's not like where you just go like a sprint race where you're like, okay, I'm fit. And the fittest person is going to cross the thousand meters as fast as they can. It's like, okay, I have to be the fittest, but I also have to be the technically the best. And I also on the day have to make no mistakes. Yeah. Um, and so it comes down, it's just this crucible of pressure or it's like a, it's like a pressure cooker. So I don't know if it was just me, my personality, or kind of at that stage of my life, or I just put too much pressure on myself. But I, I think the biggest thing, I certainly was not doing myself any favors by being a little bigger and a little heavier. But the big thing was like, there were big athletes, like one of the biggest, one of the best athletes in Germany was also a big athlete. Um, but I think one of the big things was just the mental side of things. I would just come and you're sitting in the start gate by yourself, waiting for your chance to go down the course. And it was just hard not to wig yourself out. So I think, I think the biggest thing in my way was, was the old, uh, between the years. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And that's something that I've noticed a lot in these interviews as well. Like it, it is a lot about creating that mindset to make sure that you're able to perform when you have to like not really like get distracted by the, all the things around you worry about yourself worry about your own performance and that's like something that we all like learn over time and I think so so you, you've tried in 08 and then you go back in 12 was there did you go better in 12 or was it just the same thing ironically again? I was a much better junior I didn't really think about it I just kind of went hard I was like kind of that stupid like bull you know um and I just like I trained hard I went yeah. hard and I so actually like, did. So you were probably, 18. So you probably 18 when you first did your first trials, and you were 22 when you did your next. First one. trials, yeah. I think I was like 18, 19, right around there. It was like the yeah. first year out of my juniors. So like juniors, yeah. So I was 19. It was the year yeah. that I turned 19. So I think I was 18 at the time, but that year I was turning 19, um, and it was my first year out of the juniors, and it actually went pretty well. Like not great, but like for the first year as a senior, I was like pretty stoked with it. Um, and ironically, as I got better or as I got older and should have gotten better, um, the trials didn't really improve for me. Yeah. So how was that for you? Like you're talking about your mental side of things, but how was it like, cause were you working as well? Like were you doing like university or everything or were you just fully focused on paddling at the time? Yeah. So I was going to university as well. Um, yeah. trying to get my degree at the same time. Um, and like doing, you know, whatever time I could, like I had winter breaks, one winter break, I came and uh, trained in Penrith, uh, ironically. In, oh, yeah, uh, no, I've been there. What a place. Yeah, yeah. So I went to the I went to the course there and did the, uh, the Oceana Cup. Um, so yeah, so it was a, you know, I was trying to like, summers, obviously, were a great time to full throttle, but it was it was a tough balance of 
you know, going to a rigorous, prestigious school and wanting to do well, and then also trying to chase this dream of going to the Olympics and, and you know, being a successful waterman in, in Whitewater. Yeah, absolutely. I know we, in Australia, we've got one of the best um, females ever, Jess Fox, who's actually... Yeah, Jess Fox, you yeah. You mentioned Penrith. So, yeah, I met her a few times back in my kayaking days. And yeah, that's, that's, how, that's what I think of when you're talking about um, doing your whitewater. I'm like, oh, okay, so now I understand. But, yeah, so, no, she's incredible. Um, I've been on a few sessions with her and the water back when I was back when she was super young and yeah. just like a young phenom. Um, and now she's, you know, untouchable, um, you know, like a gold. Every time I see it, yeah, she's just winning something. Like every time like, yeah. the Australian team posts something, it's just yeah, like, another yeah, world champ. So it's like, oh, I'm doing two classes, I'm winning both classes. The yeah, because she does the oh, what man. is it called? Is it C1? Yeah, so she's got yes. C1 in kayak, women's kayak yeah, and C1. That's pretty, pretty cool to be able to back up and do both, isn't it? Oh, man. I mean, just unheard of that you can do both of those. Each one of them is, you know, takes a lifetime to perfect and, and become a champion in, and to be able to do them both, and sometimes in the same day, it's just yeah. crazy. Yeah, and so you've, you're doing Olympic trials. So, then you've come off two Olympic trials in a row. You've, you've done whitewater. You've, you've sort of probably reached the end of your career at 22, as you've sort of said. Yeah. How was that transition from there into your next phase? Because you were obviously struggling a little bit mentally. Because like, obviously you'd focus so hard on whitewater paddling and then you're going, okay, this maybe not for me. How did you sort of approach that situation? Yeah. Interestingly enough, it was a lot like I listened to your, your boothcast with Corey. And yeah. It, was, it sounded like both similar situation to me where it was your first dream your first love in sport you know and it and it betrayed you because you weren't able to you know make your dream come true yeah. but there's there's this window of opportunity that comes with with every you know quote-unquote failure or door that closes on you and so I was I was very fortunate that kind of everything in my life went through a transition at that time because it was the 2012 trials and then December of 2012 I finished my degree um, and I was just kind of like looking for something else. And it was a friend of mine in Bellingham. Actually, I think you know him, DJ. Um, yeah, DJ. Yeah, I'll stay with DJ. Yeah, yeah. So he was like, oh, man, stop crying into your milk. Like, come out to <laughs> Bellingham. I'm going to teach you what surf ski is. Yeah. I think you're going to love it. And I went up there. I was like, fine, whatever. And I went up. I went for two weeks with him. And we just kind of immediately fell in love with the sport. It was like, wow. It's like, you know, I always – I think also another one of the things was I was – I think my fibers are kind of more geared towards um, slow twitch and endurance. And so I think yeah. I was trying to like force myself into more of a fast twitch um, sport. And so another yeah. kind of thing that I was fighting against a little. So I just was like kind of naturally a bit better at paddling for longer. And, and I've always loved to train, you know, more than I should. So I think it was, it was just a really natural transition. And I spent two weeks with him and I was like, ah, oh, man, I love this. And at that time we had done only flat water surf ski. Um, and then yeah. we went to San Fran and I caught my first wave and I was like, Oh man, <laughs> yeah. came over. this is the sport. It's uh, yeah. So it just came at a very good time in my life where I was like, I just had this bitter breakup with whitewater. I just graduated and I ended up moving to the West coast and moved in with my best friend who also graduated and he came to San Diego cause he wanted to be a Navy SEAL. So I was like, okay, I'll go with you. We'll, we'll get an apartment together and, and I'll just, you know, I'll kayak to stay fit. I'll do the surf ski thing to stay fit. And I will, you know, look for work in San Diego. 
and the more I did it, and there was like a SoCal series here, and I just realized there was so much to learn, and it was so fun, and then you got the downwind element in, yeah. involved in the whole thing, and I realized I could race people for 90 minutes, not, you know, 90 seconds. Um, so yeah, just, it was kind of like a, a perfect storm of, of things that came my way, and I just fell in love with surf skiing. So just so everyone knows, like San Diego is right down the bottom of California and Bellingham is like quite high, just above San, um, Seattle there, isn't it? So yeah. it's quite, quite a distance, maybe 20 hours or something driving. Yeah, it's pretty much, Bellingham is the closest like town before Canada and San Diego is the closest city before Mexico. Yeah, so, so it's like, yeah, very, very far distance. So, so you went to Bellingham, but then how did you end up in San Diego? Obviously with your friend, but... Well, that's, well I, well, I might get to that story later, but this one was just, I just went up to visit him for like two uh, okay. weeks. You know, yeah, just so I know, you, I know you actually moved there for a little bit, so that's why I was Yeah, so later to... in my life, I've been, I moved all over the country, so it's kind of a crazy story of, there was a period there where I think like for a, almost a decade, I never lived in the same place for more than seven months. Yeah. Um, so there was just like a lot of movement um, in my life. I know the feeling. Um, but I just went, yeah, I mean, you very similar. I mean, you live out of a suitcase, like for yeah. you. Oh, not anymore. Like, now, I, now I get to unpack my yeah, suitcase. Yeah, you're like, wow, time. my home. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, so coming away from Sursky, I mean, sorry, coming away from Whitewater and coming into Sursky, you've gone from like, I've always been really interested in the, like, the crankshaft of Whitewater. Can you yeah. tell us a little bit about the difference between the, like, the crankshaft and the, the wing blade? Totally. So... A bunch of different things. First off, you've got a couple different styles of shafts. So like for first, well, I'll back up even further. The length of the paddle is gonna run you a bit shorter. So like a whitewater blade at its very max is gonna run you 200 centimeters. Like I raced with a 201 and everyone yeah. was like, oh, your paddle's too long. Um, yeah. So it's a much shorter paddle. Most people are racing like with a 195, 192 centimeter paddle. Um, yeah. And then the next thing obviously is instead of like the wing blade that's kind of like curved like a leaf or a wing, it's just a pure flat paddle. Um, yeah. And the blades these days are getting even like bigger and bigger. So huge surface area, you just kind of stick it in and then you just like lever. There's no wing. What's interesting about the stroke is that it took me a long time to realize this, but in and when you're paddling with a wing paddle, it, it tracks. There's, you're not manipulating the blade through the water with like forearm or anything. It's kind of, it's planted and then you kind of like pull and rotate past it. Whereas in whitewater, you are actually changing the angle of feather with your forearm and with your arm to actually change because you're, you're steering with your strokes. Yeah, because there's, no, there's no fin or anything like that. It's just like a no. round, small boat. Yeah, so just, yeah. So all of the, the, the navigational element are, is done from pulling yourself along with this blade. So sometimes you kind of like will feather out and will leverage the boat in the direction of your blade. Um, and then, well, that, I won't even get to, into the specifics of that. But then what you've seen is uh, there's definitely there are two types of whitewater blades one that are that are straight shafts kind of they look very similar to a wing shaft and then the other shafts are bent shafts and they have right around the where you grip the hand there's almost like a it's just like a like kind of an yeah, like s it cranks it cranks out yeah it's sort of like it's like that and it just goes like out like that 
Yeah. So, so, and then so it cranks, so it, it, so it changes the angle so that you can get a better angle of, of kind of like purchase because you're not, it's not just like locking into the water and moving. You really have to manipulate the blade. So it will, it changes just the way that the blade goes in the water and you can have a little bit further, a different, yeah, a bit further in front without. Actually yeah. A bit further in front of you. And, and just like some people feel like it's a better, it's a better setup for the stroke types that they'll have to do. Did you ever do, I know there's a guy in um, SUP who used to do, I know he has like a crank, he used to have a crank shaft as well for the SUP. It was actually quite interesting when he brought it out, but he was a, the whitewater, not like the way you did it, but like straight down the river, like it's like 90 seconds. Yeah, sprints. so I actually did that a couple of times. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I thought, yeah, I thought you did that one. I only did that like, you know, recreationally, like at a camp or like occasionally if we were doing like off season training. Um, but that's super interesting as well, because then you're using a wing paddle, but the, but you don't have any rudder or anything. So you steer the thing by leaning. So you're yeah. going down the river and if you want to go left, you lean right. And it'll, it'll kind of just like slowly arc the boat. And the only time where you can get like finite movement of like any kind of meaningful change in direction is if you crest a wave and at the crest of the wave with neither the bow nor the stern is in the water you can crank the boat with a stroke and then change the, the direction so yeah wow um, yeah so I've that's never, a super never tried anything sport. like that yeah because it's yeah. so interesting those sports that have no rudder like you feel like the rudderless canoe the var then you've got it's the c1 obviously i remember paddling a c1 like once i just was just going around in circles and i was like sure changing hands and i was like oh what am i doing and I was a bit frustrated, so I think I just I, I pulled the pin on that. But then you've got obviously the whitewater style ones as well. So but that's the two blades amp. But then you've also got the the one side as well, don't you? Yeah. So you've got the C one. So for C one, for any people who don't know, it's you're actually on your knees, um, and you have oh, okay. one. So it's like a it's like a sup, but you're on your knees versus sitting. Yeah. Um, but it's kind of like a surf ski sort of style boat. Yes, the boat looks very similar. Um, almost identical, almost identical. Oh, to a surf ski. Yeah. So the boat for downriver is, is like a pumped up volume surf ski that you're inside. It's like yeah. if someone took a K1 and they're just like, I want it 200% bigger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Just like, it's just, it is literally like someone's yeah. Like, That's a really good <laughs> Yeah. So yeah. So you've done the white one. That was a really good explanation of that. Thanks for giving me insight on that. Cause I actually know nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. That. That's really cool. And um, so we're going into surf skiing now. So how did that journey sort of start for you? Obviously you're doing the SoCal winter uh, summer series or winter series. And is that sort of linked with the stand up series that they do down there as well? Or is that separate? That's a good question. There, there is like, I think the stand up series is separate and the SoCal series is kind of like open to all ocean sports. So okay. anyone can come and then the SoCal series has, you know, subdivisions, outrigger divisions, surf ski divisions. Um, but I think there might also be separate sup races that have their own series. So, so do you find in like, even in SoCal, do you find that the, the divisions are separate? Like I'm sort of trying, so I'm trying to find this theme here where, like it'd be great to see like more of the sports actually just do the same races and actually turn up and make it more of a big event and a festival sort of event. Like the, yeah. in the States, so they do like, is it, is it really segregated like outrigger ski and sup or is it generally integrated or how does it work? I'd say it's generally pretty segregated, but the SoCal series is one of the few that, that is really truly kind of panders to everyone kind of is trying to anyone who's interested in water sports come together we're going to have a race we've got multiple distance courses 
it's a race for everyone. Please come, you know, enjoy, try different yeah. craft. But there's a big um, kind of movement recently to get people to try to race different crafts in different events throughout the year. Yeah, I think that's really cool because it's like it's quite fun because I've done obviously a lot of different paddling sports and they're all just paddling. So, and it's cool to learn that different skill and it keeps you motivated to keep paddling as well. Like you don't move over to like golf or the cricket or whatever you guys do over there. You know, like you just stay in your instead you stay in paddling, but you're doing a different skill. So you meet new people, your your social group grows, and like your community gets bigger. So I really like to see that more going forward. But with surf ski, um, you, you yeah you started there. So how did you start doing the international races and like give us a little bit of a feedback um, story on that. Yeah. So another great question. Um, the first thing was like trying to learn surf ski. You know, it's um, there's really not much of a surf ski community in the U.S. Um, and there's really no life-saving clubs. So there was like nowhere to really learn how to ski. So it was a lot of YouTube. Um, yeah. And I, I essentially had to learn how to use my legs in, in paddling. Of course, and yeah. Because in, in whitewater, your, your legs almost become the bone structure of the boat. And then you move the boat like it's the lower half of your body. Whereas obviously in surf ski, you're on top of it and you're pumping and, and kind of driving the boat with your legs. So there's no leg movement when you're inside of a whitewater boat. But you, through your hips, you're actually like throwing the boat around because um, it's a much shorter boat. So you're like spinning it. Um, but it was just a totally different thing to figure out how to, and there was a long time where I just kind of no legs at all paddled. Yeah. Um, so it was kind of like a, a process of, okay, what is this sport? How do I learn how to do it? What are the standards? And then there, at the time there was like a pretty big international race, the U S surf ski champs in San Francisco. Yeah. Um, and that every times, year, that yeah, that every year determined the national champ for the U.S. And so I was like, okay, that's my goal. You know, I want to figure out what I have to do to be national champ in the U.S. and to be the, the fastest U.S. guy um, at, uh, at the U.S. Surf Ski Champs. So first goal, I went after it and just kind of poured myself into it. I went, you know, had some pretty unsuccessful first attempts at the U.S. Surf Ski Champs, but along the way met – uh, Jasper and David Maka, um, who had come over to do the race. And they said, Hey man, if you ever have any interest, you should come to South Africa and, you know, and we'll, you know, we'll take you out and you can train with us. And, you know, we just come over and catch some waves. So I was like, okay. I don't know if they actually thought I was going to take them up on it, but I, uh, I kind of showed up that winter and they're incredible guys, incredible hosts and the whole town that they're a part of the whole life-saving club there were incredible to me and kind of opened their doors. And I, I joined them. For like that was Fishhook? Yeah. And Fishhook. Yeah. 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 Very and good. And so I just, I think that was a big turning point where I was like, Oh wow. I kind of, got a little more insight into what it looks like to train for this sport, a little more insight into, you know, what it looks like to downwind well, what it looks like to paddle much more quickly than I was at the time. And then I kind of took those tools home and, and did everything that I could to, uh, to kind of chase in at that time. Cause like the first U S surf ski champs I went to David once I, I wanted to be David, you know? Yeah. Um, so went back and trained for two years and, in actually in 2014, I ended up having this breakthrough race, you know, best race of my life up to that time and ended up getting fifth 
really close to actually David in an incredibly tough race, which I was super proud of with a super dense field and ended up getting, was the U.S. champ there at that time. Nice. And had this feeling of like, oh, I made it. And then I went back to South Africa that year, went to the doctor for the first time. And over the course of the rest of the year, just got throttled in all the international competitions I did and realized that there was, there was a big division between being, you know, U.S. champ and being like an international competitor. And yeah. I, I kind of like took stock of my life at that time. I said, you know, it's about time for me to start getting a career. I think what I should do is I should, you know, I should, you know, leave this behind. It took me two and a half years to, to become national champ. And I'm super proud of the work that I put in and, you know, how far I've come. But it's going to take at least that amount of time again for me to ever, you know, rise to a level where I could actually be, you know, consistently internationally competitive. And so I actually just decided to, to give it up. So I took a job teaching high school um, English and yeah. Yeah. I moved to Idaho, which for those of you who don't know, the U.S. is just, just middle and nowhere central U.S. No, not close to any ocean or body of water. Yeah. Um, and, and just, you know, did the teaching thing. And uh, long story short, I found myself in New York City uh, like uh, eight months after that and then gave New York City a run. And as I was walking to work one day in New York City, I just had this realization moment where I was like, wow, I am, you know, coming into my later half of my 20s and I haven't been an athlete for a year and I really miss it. And if I ever want to do this seriously, like my window is closing. So if I want to give this thirsty thing a go and I want to see how fast I can get and I want to see if I'm capable of being internationally competitive, I've got to do this now. So I, again, DJ came into the picture and I, uh, he called me up and was like, you got to get out of there, man. Come over to Bellingham and you can live in my basement while you try to find work and, uh, yeah. and we'll get did this have, thing started. Did he have his RV there as well at that stage? No, no, not yet. That's where I slept one time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so I want to go back a little bit. So you've you've gone 2012, you've done two years of hard work, you become US champion, and then you've just stopped because you've had um, a few experiences at the doctor and in South Africa where you've got a pounded, which I I know the same experience. When I first started, I think my first race, I finished 27th. Like I went to Dubai Shamal, I finished 20th. Like I was just like, I'm never going to be able to do this. But you took a different approach. You went like, I'm going to stop. Whereas I went, I'm going to like knuckle down and get, go like, just go harder and just keep training and try and get better. Why did you make that decision to sort of stop and then come back a little bit later and, and actually go, okay, I really want to do this. I've lived in Idaho. I, there was no water. It, was, it, was, it wasn't as fun. You know, like what, 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 what changed your yeah, mind? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think, I think for a couple, there were a, a couple things in play there. First, um, I think it was a pretty lonely process for me because when I trained for those two years, it was like, I was just by myself. Like I had no yeah. training partner, no squad, nobody to train with. It was just like me out there trying to approximate hard training as best I could by myself. And it was just, it ended up being a, like a pretty lonely process. Like I, I love the story you and Corey were talking about. Every session was like a race and you, you pull up on race day and you've, you know, raced one of the top five guys in the world 
every session and it just yeah. turns into another session. I think that's something still to this day that I long for is I long. I'm, so if you know of any uh, really competitive surf ski Australians who are thinking of moving to San Diego, convince them I'll be your best training partner you ever had. I, promise. I will be sure to let them know. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think it was just one of those things where I was like, okay, I love this sport and I, don't get me wrong. It wasn't like I was, you know, petulant and thought you're like, Oh, I hate losing. I don't want to do this. It was more like, realistically, it's going to take us a lot of work if I want to do this. And I think I'm capable of it, but do I want to sit down and, you know, put career on hold for another three to five or however long it takes years and do this, you know, very non-lucrative um, passion based, but like ultimately for really, for me, pretty lonely sport. Um, yeah. And I just had this realization. I was like, you know, I, I, I love this sport, but I kind of already went through that, that journey of chasing perfection in, in whitewater. And I thought just at the time I thought, you know, what I haven't tried is I haven't tried figuring out what my career is going to be, what my life's going to look like beyond paddling. Maybe it's that time in my life. You know, I'm over, I'm over 25. I can't remember what I, what age I was at the time, but I was like, I'm, I'm second half of my twenties. Maybe I should, you know, be a, a responsible adult and look into what my career is going to look like. It, it um, was funny that you say that because I know I can relate to myself in that period between like, I was doing like a bit, I did three years of sprint kayaking and I was sort of coming not to the end of that, but I just didn't see any opportunities for myself. And I probably wasn't as good as the guys I was competing against. So it was, I was in a bit of a crossroads there and I was doing surf ski, but as you say, it's not very lucrative. So you're sort of doing it as a passion project. And I was just like fortunate enough at the same time, stand up sort of came into my life and sort of prolonged my career. And I was really lucky that that sort of happened because I was able to continue being an athlete and still being able to make like, okay money. Like obviously like you probably do any job out there and get the same money, but at least I can do my passion and, and be able to make some sort of income. But yeah, I can, I can totally relate to your situation there where you've, you've come out of like such a long year chasing a passion in a sport and then you've got, oh, I'm going to do this new one. And then you've done, you've made, you've made your goal in two years to make, become us champ. And then it's like, yeah, but that was great, but I'm not getting anything out of it. And I think a lot of people don't understand it or do understand it, but they don't really relate to it because it is purely passion. Like you're working jobs just so you can go paddling. Like you're, you're working your, like your every day to go training and then to pay for your trip and you come back and you have to start working again to, pay for the yeah, next trip and it's 100%. just like an endless I mean, it, cycle it's totally it's like i was waiting tables at the time so it's just like I'm, I'm you know i'm a waiter at a restaurant I'm, and i'm and it's to the point where my trips were getting long enough where i had to find new jobs when i came back it wasn't like i could take vacation and come back to the same job it was like i had to figure out and find a new job when i got back and try to earn enough money to go on my next trip and so yeah, yeah it was it was definitely pure passion it was like Oh, everything I earned was a hundred percent going back into the sport plus some probably. Um, so yeah, it was just this time of like, Oh gosh, I love it. But is it, is it the right move to re up my goal and to, and to like go all in or is it the right move to kind of transition um, career wise? So at, and then, at the time I, I decided career. Yeah. And how did you like your career? Obviously you came back. So it'd be nice to talk about like Idaho and going to New York and, doing this career stuff. I remember speaking to you at the time and you were sort of at crossroads even then when you were talking about it. then all of a sudden you're like, bam, I'm back into like surf ski racing. I want to do that. Like New York is just like, <laughs> not for me. I can't go paddling. I can't do this. So 
Um, yeah, tell us a bit about that sort of section. Yeah, so um, I got this incredible opportunity. I didn't have my teaching certificate at the time, um, but there was this kind of adventure school in Idaho that was kind of an outdoor kind of leadership based program, but that still was very academically focused. So, and they were looking for a teacher who was also had some whitewater kayaking skill because one of the adventure portions of the piece was they went on these whitewater kayaking expeditions. So I was like, what are the chances that I get experience teaching English, which was I thought I wanted to do high school English. I get this experience of being able to do that without going through the whole process of getting my teacher's certificate. And because I have this like unique in with my whitewater experience. So I said, you know, this is an opportunity I feel like I can't say no to. And that's why it kind of was like all of a sudden I went from South Africa to Idaho. Um, So, and it was, it was an incredible experience. And I loved, I loved a lot of the pieces of teaching that I thought I would. I love, I love learning. I love education. I think for a lot of part of my life, I thought for sure I was going to get a PhD in something. Didn't really matter what it was going to be, but I just, you know, I love, you know, higher education, I think is, is, is always been a passion of mine and something I've been reasonably successful in. And so I, I really enjoyed it and it was, uh, it was a very cool experience, but it was also a, a very odd uh, dynamic because I moved to this town of like 900 people um, to teach high school and there were it was a very small school it was like a semester school so there were, God, what were there, like 30 students and six teachers and because I was the temp teacher I was not like part of the teacher group so all of a sudden I went from like a lonely paddling surf ski by myself to coming to this teaching experience where I was, you know, very much, I felt very lonely again. Um, and, and no one else kind of shared that passion for, for being active. So I would go on these runs and by myself and I picked up cross country skiing to stay fit. And so I ended up being a super solitary thing again. Um, and I think it was just a hard dynamic of like, I ended up kind of being a camp counselor as well. Cause I was looking after the kids because yeah. um, they, they lived on campus and, and it was just like a weird time in my life where I was like, I wasn't, a, I wasn't the teacher's age and I wasn't part of them, but I was like older than the students. And I was like, kind of like their mentor, but also like their big brother. And it was just like a, an odd kind of blurring of the lines dynamic. And I just ended up getting, I ended up just, it just wasn't the right fit for me, I think in the end of the day. And I really enjoyed it, but just was kind of like, ah, there's just like a lot of bureaucracy that goes into teaching and and also I talked with a lot of incredible teachers that I've had in my life and I realized that sadly when it comes to teaching you know like high school and middle school and kind of the the younger years in in the U.S. a teacher has to deal with way more than they should have to it's not just about them going in and delivering incredible education to these kids but it's navigating the political system and the bureaucracy and and I just realized that like as passionate as I was about teaching and about kids and about getting kids excited about learning, I, I wasn't ready to add all of those other pieces to it. So I was like, okay, cool experience. I'm super glad I got the chance and didn't go after a teaching certificate and go down that road. Yeah. But I, I think I'm ready for, for something else and ended up, uh, 
New York was <laughs> just kind of pinned the tail on the donkey, I ended up heading to New York, moved in with a friend from college, and again, just kind of got there and was like, okay, let's find some work. Uh, found a sales job in Manhattan and just started the kind of the, the rat race there, which was a cool experience. I mean, I forever, forever will be grateful of my time in Manhattan because one, it's like how many people can say they've lived in New York City. It's like yeah. know, so many movies are based on New York City. So it was cool, like ride the subway to work and walk yeah. around Manhattan. And like every turn that I made downtown was like, oh, I remember this square from some movie that I've seen. So it was a very surreal experience and riding the subway and, you know, being in a, a city of 8 million people and uh, just being a very iconic place in the world and especially in the U.S., I'm, I'm really grateful. And the biggest thing was I met my wife uh, at the time there, um, yeah. which was, you know, something I will always thank New York for. And, and I'm super appreciative that I, I made New York the, the place that I wanted to go for the next step. But, um, but, to, but to get back to your question, I'm sorry if I ramble like crazy. No, that's like great. I, I like hearing into your, into your story, into your life. I think it's really interesting actually hearing like you've, you actually kind of, it's kind of like a blessing in disguise that you went to Idaho and you did your teaching because you learned that you probably wasn't as much for you as you thought it was going to be. Like you, you yeah. didn't realize all the other hurdles that you had to go through because in any environment, you're always going to have that political system and that bureaucracy. Like even in totally. sport, you have the same thing. And yeah. especially in Olympic sports, like you probably found a lot in whitewater. I knew I found in sprint hiking, but, and then you sort of had this like lifestyle, more freedom sport, like, like surf ski or like stuff for me. And it's, um, it's just amazing how like you, you see that happen and you're like, Oh, well it happens everywhere. And then yeah. you've moved to New York, you've got a sales job and it's just something so different than what you'd ever thought. So, you yeah, so different. Like, was that just like you were looking on like the white pages or whatever you have over there? And you're just like, I'm trying to get a job. And that was, yeah, I'm just trying to get a job pretty much. Yeah. Ended up, uh, yeah, just kind of lucked into it. And uh, I wanted to be, cause I've always liked people and like, that's been a big thing for me. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to be, like a, like a more kind of novice manager, but obviously I had no managing experience. So I applied for this like kind of junior manager position interviewed and they were like, Ooh, we love your personality. We're not going to give you that job. What do you think about a sales job? Um, so I kind of just got like shunted into their sales pipeline. Yeah. Um, so. And how did yeah, you like so that? Do you like the sales? Do you like the sales job? Interesting. I thought I was going to love it. I went to the sales training and crushed sales training. And I was like, oh man, maybe I'm like made for this. And it turns out that there's a huge difference between sales training and actually selling things to people. I think because sales training is like basically acting. Well, really, it's more like, it's more like going to school because it's like, you know what the instructor wants. Yeah. You know, like you have to memorize all the stuff you have to go through. It's like a, it's a kind of a weird combination of acting and school and which both things I'm, I, I really love. So it was the perfect fit for me. And as a result, I got like fast tracked to the sales training. They were like, this guy's going to be great. And then I actually got to the selling and I found that I couldn't ask people for their money. It's just like, it's this weird, it, I, think I have problems with conflict just as a yep. person, though I was super personable and we had these great connections with all these people, I would just get to the close and I just couldn't just get it together. You'd like become um, their friend. You'd be like, you just make your own decision. Like you don't have to. I was like, honestly, this is, you know, it's, 
it's all it's apples to oranges. It's like whatever product you feel like is the best is going to be going to be happy with, you know. Um, yeah, I find so, that same thing. I, I find it really hard asking people for money. Like I love helping people, but I just yeah, it is it is a really hard one to ask something like something like that because you want something for your time, you want something for your effort, but it's like oh, but I really like you though, so I, I don't want to. I don't know. Yeah, it's like I want the best for you, and if this is the right for you, is this the right decision for you? Then let's do this together, and like let's go in, and I can help you buy it. But if not, it's like, and it was weird. The company was very much like a traditional closing. It was like, you've got to get said no to three times before they leave your office. And I was like, oh, it just like made my skin crawl. It's like <laughs> you know, trying to ask someone again after they've already said no to you is just like for me is, oh, tough. So. Yeah, I can completely agree with that. I wouldn't, I wouldn't like that sort of role. So that's great. So you've done New York, you've, you've done sales, you've learned you don't like that either. And <laughs> you, you've, You've met Emily, which eventually was your bride-to-be, but you've moved, and then you move again. Yeah, so moved to Bellingham, and um, just life there through DJ, I ended up coaching the the Bellingham Sprint Kayak Club for the, the kids, which I loved. Incredible group of kids. Was so grateful to be a part of that community, but the Bellingham paddling community as a whole. I think you you know you've you've done some some paddling and some coaching there. Just yeah, right. Great. I paddled right near DJ's house. What was that lake called? Yeah, that Lake Wacom. Such a good, yeah, Lake Wacom. That was a really nice paddle. Oh man, so yeah, so just incredible place, incredible people. Was super lucky to get the coaching job there just to get me on my feet. Um, and, and so lived there, started, realized, okay, I'm, I'm going to give this surf ski thing a go. I'm going to give myself three like full seasons. So this one doesn't count. I've started in like the summer for us. So I started in like May. So I was like, I'm not going to count the first half year. Are we in 2016? 2016. So then I was like, I'm going to do three full calendar years starting 2017. Um, but, and, and no matter where I get, doesn't matter, like try to not place like a success of like winning something or achieving some goal, but being like, if I work as hard as I can and to the best of my knowledge for three years, I'll be happy, you know? Yeah. And that Just was be the best you can be. Yeah. The best I can be. And that was kind of my goal as I set out. And I also think I, I had this idea of, okay, I'm going to ask myself to try to achieve a level of excellence and performance that I was seeking in Whitewater. So I think there was a big piece of it was, this is your chance to do that right and not finish your journey bitter, you know, mm. not finish whether you succeed or fail with whatever goal you set for yourself. It's try to think about it as the process of being a professional athlete versus did you or did you not like win an international race or, you know, podium at, at the world champs or whatever, whatever goal I was going to set. So I think there was like a twofold goal when I launched into this process. Yeah. So you have your, so this is like your second stint at Surfski. You, you start yeah, at yeah. Bellingham. Round two. Do, <laughs> the renaissance. Your, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you, yeah, you, you're training in Bellingham. It's obviously still a pretty flat water. What I find with surf skis, it is like something about, I remember you were saying when you're in San Francisco and you're doing the race and it sort of like obviously became messy and it was like a bit harder because you weren't really used to using the ski in those type of conditions because obviously you've been training in the flat water and then you come over and done the US surf it was like, whoa, like this is a really different environment. Then you've gone to South Africa, you've gone to the doctor and it's like obviously again, more downwind, very different. How did you get those skills? Because you did become really, really good at it. Interestingly enough, I... 
I was super lucky while I've always kind of been a little behind on the fitness and a little behind on the speed and just the endurance and, and like a lot of what I call like the sprint kayaking fundamentals of surf ski, where it's like you do your, your basic sprint stroke and like how fast can you do a thousand meters or a 2k or, you know, a 10k on the flat. I've always been a little bit behind the, you know, international curve in there, but for whatever reason, I think probably largely from whitewater, um, I picked up downwinding much more quickly than I did just the general like flat water fitness. Um, okay. And so the races that I did do well, like for example, the race I did really well in San Francisco 2014, it was, it was all because the second half was downwind. And like I went from being like 12th to fifth all in the, in the very, like in the very end of it because it was surfing and, if I look at the races I've done well in my career, none of them have been flat water races. All of yeah, them. Yeah. Okay. So I thought it would have been a little bit different, but I guess thinking back to your whitewater days, you would have been so used to water moving around and picking like channels and picking like different and sections. Like water, here, yeah. yeah. And reading water. So yeah, it's quite interesting that you had more trouble with the flat water side of things than you did with the, the, the ocean. Yeah. So I still, well. I mean, I still feel like I have my Achilles heel is like the start of a race and like, you know, and the fitness aspect that revolves around kind of the flat water fitness, I still think is something that I'm, I'm working on and I'm, I'm trying to, to improve. But like the downwind piece of it, for whatever reason, came really quickly and, and has always been my major strength. So, yeah. Yeah, no, no, that's, that's really cool to hear because like a lot of people always say they struggle the most with the downwind section, but you've always, you struggle with the flat water section. It's just really very, very different. But it's great to hear. It's all really, really cool. So, no, now you, so, cool. yeah, because like, yeah, it's, it's very, very different to what most people have the, their biggest troubles with. So yeah, it's just, yeah, nice to hear. And um, we're talking about um, Sursky paddling and obviously being in South Africa. How important was going over it and like sort of spending time with like, I guess they basically became your mentors like David and Jasper. How important oh, was that section to your Sursky? Huge. I mean, f- huge for me. Um, both of those guys are huge role models of mine and they really inspired me to kind of like chase, you know, whatever level of, of eliteness in the sport because watching them and, and the experience I had with them and they were both, I mean, I stayed with their mom in their, like, you know, in their family home when I went the second time. So it was like, just they were incredibly generous and incredibly open with me and you know the first time I I trained kind of a little bit with everyone and the second trip I I trained kind of exclusively with the Asper and so it was a very it was a very cool experience and something I still draw on for you know motivation of like oh you know this session that they did and and doing the Miller's runs with them I remember just like it was just so cool to watch my times just like plummet from the first time I did a Miller's run to you know the last time and um and just being able to experience a Miller's run with the Maka brothers it was just it was just a very cool thing and piece of my life and they took me to the Fish River Marathon I did you know the only river marathon I've ever done in my life which was I think probably hands down the coolest race experience I've ever had um just like a two day trip in the middle of, you know, the great Karoo, South Africa, just like taking sprint kayaks off low head dams. It was just like, a, it was something that was just so foreign to me and so crazy. And they were so open and, and generous with their expertise and their time. And, and 
and they they're now people who I call you know very close friends. So it was a it was very formative time in my surf ski career um, for motivation and friendship and learning and yeah growth. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And when you're talking about the the Fish River Marathon, like that's a very big thing, big deal into Africa. The river racing. Um, I think it sort of really got um, shot up when, in apartheid and, and when like they were only able to race each other and that, that, but that, that sort of whole scene is so big over there. Like it's like, they like, you see like guys like Hank and but Sean Rice and Kenny Rice have all done them, Darwin and Jasper have all done them. So it's like, it's, it's paddling is like paddling over there. And like, it, whether you're doing the river paddling or the flat water or you're doing the, or the ocean ski, it's sort of a really combined sort of paddling experience. What when you when you did the fish like was it how many so it was two days and how how far was each day? Yeah, so it's just incredible. First off, there's like two thousand people who did it the year I did it, so it's just like yeah. mind-boggling the amount yeah. of of paddlers they have because like now we have a surf ski race and they're like two hundred people. That's a solid surf ski race. So it's like to rock up with like you know they just everyone's there. The people doing it in K threes, you know, it's just like it's anarchy but it's just this very community vibe. So it was a very cool adventure race. And it's a two day race where you start on a lake, basically a dammed up lake and you sprint across the lake and then you enter into this section of river and you're, you're on the fish river for the rest of, of the race. And it's, I want to say it's around 35 K a day. Um, yeah. but with the currents and everything, it, it's about two hours a day of paddling, okay. but there's like, you know, it's what I was keen for it. Cause I'm a terrible runner, but it's of the, of the river marathons. It's one of the, the least amount of running of, of all of them. So yeah. Cause um, they do lots okay. of those portages and they get out and they run around weirs or yeah, like, weirs. yeah, for example, yeah. For the doozy, it's like, do you run 10Ks up mountains? I'm like, I'm never going to do that. <laughs> yeah. You're too, yeah, it comes uh, back to being too heavy, like you're in your whitewater days. Oh, yes. Yeah, <laughs> so true. So I got really lucky in the sense that the one that they brought me to turned out to be the biggest whitewater, or not the biggest, but one of the biggest whitewater races and the least amount of portaging or, or running around. Um, so it was it kind of weirdly, I took to it pretty easily. Um, I, I have very little experience in a sprint boat at the time. Um, but we tripped the day before we kind of like looked at the rapids and they showed me where to go. Um, and actually the race, I ended up doing decently well. Um, I was, I think 15th, uh, yeah. but it was, like, for example, it's like David was like 50th and Kenny, I think did it. And he was like in the sixties. It was just like, there's so many incredible paddlers, and so, like the depth of of the field is is huge there, and, and, it's a very and you would have had a, and you would have had a lot of experience down rivers, so that would have obviously really helped you when you were yeah. So super helpful. Yeah, it was all the rapids were easy for me. It was the bunch tactics on the river, which which threw me for a loop. I got I swam twice, and I navigated all the rapids fine. But the times that I swam is because the bunch would like push me over into a rock and I would just like fall out. I was like, what are you guys doing? But it's yeah. very, it's a, it's a really competitive, really fierce um, kind of cutthroat experience of. Yeah. Of so there's like a lot of like, it's like that sort of part of the race is it like sort of running people into things. And so you, yeah, that's I, I don't know, like, maybe it was just, they were like this stupid American. We're going <laughs> to shave him off on this rock. But uh, yeah. Yeah, it was a, it was a pretty amazing experience, and I will forever think of that as possibly one of the greatest. You know, I think 
for sure the greatest race I've ever done, the most fun I've ever had racing. Wow, we're going to get back and do some, it sounds like. Oh, man. If it wasn't like a 45-hour trip by plane away from me, I, I would definitely go back. <laughs> and talking about the Miller's Run, um, that's sort of like a pretty famous run in Surfski. I think sort of Rob Mosley made that sort of a really big thing, I think, when Surfski Info started years ago. How, how cool is that run? So I've done it a few times as well. Only once back in like 2012, I think it was. And I stayed at the Barnacle with Sean Rice. And I think yeah. Kenny was still saying, actually, Kenny wasn't there. It was, um, I can't remember the other guys living in the house right now. But it was such a cool experience to go and do the Miller's Run. Why do you think it's such an amazing run? And like, obviously, there's big ocean swells. There's obviously a lot of wind. It's really hectic wind to like 40 knots. How fun is that run? And why did you like it so much? Oh, man. I think the biggest thing was the competitive aspect of it. And so here is a guy who trains totally by himself. And to have this run that's like, it's always the same distance. And you can compare all of the times, you know, against anyone who's ever done the Miller's run. And you, everyone lines up at this one rock. And then you press your watches and it's just like you get to race. So it's like a race whenever you do a downwind, which for me was a very new experience of first being able to race people, but then, I mean, even less likely for me to find someone who would want to paddle with me in a downwind. You know, it's like, there are some, there are some fit flat water paddlers in the US, but very few really skilled downwind paddlers. Um, so it was just this whole new experience of being able to race in the downwind and have it just be this set course that, you know, the wind will change a little bit, but it's, you know, the markers, you know, you know, you've got, when you hit the lighthouse, you've got 6K to go. It's just, it's a very cool stretch of water and it happens to be pretty ideally lined up and pretty consistent. So I think for me it was also, it's just gorgeous. I mean, that part of the world, you know, that, uh, that part of the of the Cape is just is an incredible part of the world. So it's a really rugged and gorgeous landscape, topography, and uh, to get to to downwind dice with some of the best downwind paddlers in the world. There, it's uh, yeah, it's really fun. Yeah, Cape Town is such a magical spot. I know when I went there and I trekked around, I learned how to drive a manual car pretty much in Emily Rice's <laughs> car. And that's a lesson for the day. And I remember like going up to Table Mountain, I got stuck on like this traffic. It was like this massive hill. And I remember just like revving the shit out of the car to get it up. But I got it up there. It was um, one of those yeah, weird experiences. But just driving around even the bottom half of the Cape and then coming back around into Fishel. Yeah, it's, yeah. Just, it's just an incredible landscape. And it's such a wild and... Um, rugged sort of um whole environment so it's really really cool also going into um like this the community you're sort of talking about like how the paddling is so big in south africa it's, it's kind of big in australia and we'll get to that why do you think america doesn't really um really catch hold with surf ski paddling I, I know i was speaking to dan ching the other day and he was saying like a lot of the the, the best athletes sort of get taken by the university systems by the the big sports like nba and, and nfl and everyone has, sort of has a dream around that is that yeah. sort of the same thing in Surski? Like people don't really do Surski as much because they're so focused on all these other big sort of corporate sports in the US? I think the, the school system is a big part of it. Um, to do a sport that is not part of 
a like a university team is is just kind of you're going a little bit against the grain because you can you can get so much incredible support if you are a successful athlete in a school sport where they'll essentially pay or help pay for your education which because education in the u.s is so outrageously expensive that becomes paramount it's just very important so to do a non-school sport is almost the luxury of of maybe not needing that money to to go to school um so i think that there's there's definitely that piece of it um also you know successful sports in the u.s there are so many to choose from and i think that there are it's the trickle down effect where there are so many dreams of being a you know an nfl player nba player mlb player you know the list goes on that you know once you get to ocean sports it's just you've you've trickled down so far that um and then to not be part of the school system it just it just makes it you're fighting a little bit against the conditions there and i think the other thing is i think danny ching is between california and hawaii right uh, he lives no he lives in redondo beach okay well yeah. at least from my experience of the u.s is we just don't have an ocean culture um, yeah there's just isn't like for the, the time that I've spent in Australia and South Africa, there's just this celebration of lifeguards and the water and this, you know, it being adventurous in the water. And because you have such incredible coastline uh, and we do too, but there's just this celebration of your guys's coastline and celebration of really being active and engaged in it. And you have these nippers programs, which get young people, started in the ocean and because there's no young exposure to the ocean in the u.s you have to have develop your comfort in the ocean out like by yourself essentially yeah Um, that's that is true yeah it is it is very very different to australia because obviously everyone wants like especially because we all pretty much live near the coast everyone wants to get their kids in nippers or in in now around the ocean when they're younger like everyone gets taught how to swim everyone gets taught how to to sort of go into the surf so they feel comfortable because it's very rare that you're sort of hanging out with people who don't know anything about the ocean or don't know how to swim in Australia. So yeah, it is very different to hear that. Yeah. You don't really have the, the life-saving sort of, I know you have junior lifeguards, that sort of a program, but that's only a very yeah, select tiny, sort of group. Tiny. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and that's, I, I would, yeah, that's tiny. It's nothing like it is in Australia or South Africa. Um, yeah. And you guys celebrate, so celebrate the more the interior and like, like traveling around the U S and going inside with your big RVs. Is that sort of more the culture that you you you'd grown up with or is it, what, what makes it, why, why, why do people in the U S not go to the beach and do other things instead? I think there's, I think it's, I think there's two things. One is at least the West coast is cold. Like it's just a cold ocean, you know, and it's, it's a little intimidating, Um, and there's, there's not the young, like youthful exposure to it that's built in. And I think the other thing is in the U S now, I don't mean to step on anyone's toes, but there seems to be much more of a culture of adventure in South Africa and Australia of like, I'm going to go out and I'm going to pit myself against these tough ocean conditions and see if I can come out the other side or can I paddle there? And there, there seems to be a little bit more of a fear based culture, maybe not always, but it seems now where it's like, okay, 
But if my child goes in there and drowns, who am I going to sue? You know? Yeah, it is. Like it's, it's, it's like a culpability of like fear and kind of more like lawsuit. And it just, it's less of a, like the thought of, you know, when, when Surfsky was around, I, I wasn't around at this time, but I've heard that it used to be, you know, you're in your speedo and you're on your boat and you go out, you know, wherever. And like that mentality of no life jacket in the U S would just be like, it's just like, that's a, or just to be by yourself out there and not have anyone to tell anyone. It's just, it, it runs a little counter to, and not all American culture, but I would say the, the large mainstream of American culture is just not that kind of adventurous, you know. Yeah. So it's very, it's very risk averse society, basically very conservative, like be safe, stay within your, your means. Don't like step outside your comfort zone. Don't go adventuring. Yeah, don't and go it's exploring. also like, don't, don't put on a race that's dangerous because if someone dies or someone gets hurt, they're going to sue you for all you're worth. You know, it's like, it's maybe a little bit less adventurous. And then there's also just a lot of fear of being held responsible. Liable. Yeah. That's, that's a crazy way to live, I guess, in just for me personally, like obviously in Australia, you can get sued and that sort of thing, but we don't have that sort of, you do something, you get sued straight away. Like there seems to be a lot more, well, from my experience, a lot more common sense around that sort of approach. Like there isn't, yeah, it's just, it's just not like it's everything's somebody's fault. Like who do I blame straight away? It's more about like, okay, so what did I do to put myself in that situation that caused this event? Because yeah, you sort of always know what your risks are when you're going into doing something and like safety is important, but I think it's all about what's between your ears most of the time, isn't it? Totally. I mean, it's like yeah. when, when people are suing people because they got burnt by their coffee because they didn't know it was hot. It's like, what do you mean? Like, <laughs> or like if someone trips on a curb and getting into your, into your department store and they sue the department store because the curb wasn't like indicated. It's like you step over. A like, I don't need baffles the mind sometimes the lawsuits that go on in the U S but I think that's a, that's a huge part of it. As like a race organizer, it's, you got to be thinking about that. Um, yeah. Like, for example, when I did the fish, no helmets in a sprint kayak going off dams, it blew my mind. Like, I couldn't wrap my head around it because paddling in the U.S. without a helmet on a river, it was just, like, unheard of. Yeah. Yeah, it just, it just becomes that sort of, like, whole taking something way too far with like the safety and that sort of stuff sometimes. Yeah. And you sort of see that culture, like the, the big life jackets and the helmets and what's well, just even though that is really good and really safe, it is also like my biggest thing is always think about your ability, think about your skill level and think about like, okay, this is what I'm doing. This is my responsibility, not anybody else's. And that's something yeah. that I take into everything that I do, but oh, enough on the U S political system, I guess, but let's go into, um, so you've, you've come through, you've, you've gotten a lot better. You, you come into the 2018 doctor. Um, and you have an awesome race. What sort of clicked there? Because like I know I have never made a podium in the in the doctor, and you, you finished third that year, and you were the first American. And I know Dean was like amazed to see like an American on the podium, like given the the culture and the, and the athletes like are coming from Australia and South Africa and New Zealand that were there. How good of a feeling was that for you? And what do you think really clicked for you? Because it was, it was like a really good downwind year, like it was like the, like really great conditions, and you you mix it up with the best of the best. How fulfilling was that for you? I mean, huge, hugely validating. And it was an incredible experience because I had just come from Worlds, I think like two weekends before where I finished ninth and felt just like 
in Hong Kong. I just felt kind of like off the pace and was like, you know, like, what am I doing here? You know, it was, it was just a tough, it was just like this, it was a tough race. And then I, I got, and we was lucky enough to incredible conditions. And I was like, you know, this race is all downwind. If I can make it to the turn can and not get dropped by that time, then we're in the downwind and I, I paddle well in the downwind and then I can just, you know, give it all I've got and give it a go. And just got, I had the race on life went super well. And at that time I had never really had a, a breakthrough race and it was, it was an incredible feeling and, and one that I'll, I'll definitely always remember in the sport of surf ski and, and to have it be at the doctor that's, you know, so well known. And, and like you say, it's just kind of an unofficial world champ of our sports. And, you know, I've watched so many videos of, of you and, and, and the Maka brothers and, Corey and Cotter and everyone doing this race from all the Rambo videos to the White House media video. So to be able to, to put it together on race day at the doctor in Australia as an American, I just, I, uh, it felt it was a very cool experience. And it was, and so Corey won that year? Yeah, was it was Corey and, and Hank. Corey and Hank, yeah, far out. that's pretty good podium to be standing on, isn't it? Yeah. Like, <laughs> have, like, so like we're the best sort of marathon, surf ski, paddler in the last 20 years and then you have Corey Hill who's sort of like the the big name of the sport really right now and you're sort of up there with with those guys it must have been pretty cool like coming from a and it's sort of like an, a not a seven year sort of like journey coming from whitewater not knowing what you wanted to do doing surf ski winning that US champs in 2014 quitting sort of surf ski going to the other adventures then coming back putting three seasons on and in the second season you sort of were able to achieve. I remember having great conversations with you about this in San Francisco. I think I was over for the heavy water in October yeah. of like 2017. And you were sort of talking about, Oh man, like, how do I do this? How do I get better? Like, I know, like I've seen you guys do this, but like we were talking for like an hour and a half or something like that, just about surfing. And, that, and that, that's like the great conversations I like having. And this is sort of like the booth guy, sort of like a, an extension of me just liking, yeah. talk, like talking to people. But yeah, it was just, for me, it was really cool to see, like, because I knew you wanted it so bad. I knew you wanted to prove yourself on an international level, and then you do it. And it's like, uh, it must have been, like, not only, like, a relief, but, like, it must have been just a really fulfilling moment for yourself. A hundred percent. It was it was a really, really special moment. And, yeah, to, to basically have come from World Champs and then to finish third behind, the like, the battle for first place at World Champs, you know, because they had just come one, two at World Champs, you know, the weekend before. And then to have this incredible race in the conditions that I want to be known for, you know, it's like I want to be known as a downwind paddler. And then to have the best downwind conditions of the year and, to, you know, to pull out an incredible performance and finish right behind those guys. Uh, yeah, and, that, and have people like there, like Dean, who are like, I respect the heck out of Dean, but if you're no good, Dean's, you know, he's like, who are you? <laughs> so, yeah. I've been renting boats for him. That was like my third year. And yeah. then he was like, Austin. I was like, Dean knows my name. Like, this is awesome. <laughs> um, so yeah, it was just a really cool experience of just feeling, feeling validated, but also so, I don't know, grateful for the whole journey. So yeah. And now, and now you're sort of like, you've got to be able to establish yourself. Now you are one of the best international paddlers. And how do you go from sort of that third place? I know you came over last year and you probably didn't have the, 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 the doctor race week that you probably wanted to have. Now, how was, what was different between that year and this year? 
It's a great question. So there was two years in between that podium. So I came back the next year, whole year. I was like, all I want to do, because that year it came, Sean Partners came in with the incredible cash. And so everyone was coming to the doctor. And I said, okay, all I've got to do is I want to come back and I want to reprise my podium spot. That's like all I care about this year. So I trained all year. And then like three weeks before I went to Australia, I tore a small muscle in my back training. Uh, yeah. And so I came and it like, it just totally messed up my shoulder. I think during the two weeks I was there leading up to the doctor, I had more physio appointments than I had training sessions. And I was just like, I shouldn't have been there in the first place. And I like limped into a 10th place finish um, miraculously. It was like, um, but just was super disappointing. Um, and then and that was just like a bit of a disappointing year, weirdly, of like I had this breakthrough race, bust on the scene, first podium in, you know, arguably one of the hardest races to podium in the world. And then had a pretty rough 2018 where just, you had a bunch of fourths and fifths and was just like, what? A, ah, come on. I thought we were right there. Um, yeah. and then tore the muscle and, and basically ruined the end of my season. So I wasn't able to race. And, uh, uh okay. So that's, that is really interesting. So I know you did the West coast and you came past me in that dying stages of that race and you, you finished third, I think. And I got fourth or you got fourth. And I got fifth. I'm not sure. No, so that was, was this year. That was, so that was this year. This year. Yeah. 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 So this year you finished in the West coast. Was it fifth or third? So, so we were, I was talking about 2018 was when I oh. tore my. Also, oh, in so 2018, I, you tore. Your, yeah, and I finished 10th. And you finished 10th. So this year, you finished third. So then this year, I was like, okay, ah. I'm going to do one more year. Let's see if we can do this. And I got lucky enough where I had a great performance at the Gorge. So my first, like, near win. So I came in second place behind Kenny you know, um, seven seconds away from winning, you know, following in your and Corey's footsteps in 2015 and winning my first international title race. And I was like, oh, seven seconds, man. Come on, Ken. Kenny's won it for three years now. Can he give a brother a break? <laughs> yeah, yeah, come on, um, man. Cheer but it around. was a cool experience of like being in a battle for the win. You know, like Corey was third. So it was just like incredible field and to race for the win in international. And like to be, I was leading. So it's like a surreal, that was another breakthrough experience. I had to wait another year to have one of those, but um, just an incredible race there. And then finally come to the, the Australia series. And I was like, okay, 2017 was awesome. 2018 sucked, but I had an injury. So if I stay healthy and I stay on course, like I can do this. So I was like, okay, I went to the dragon run. And I had a sixth, so I was like, solid, but like, I didn't come here to race. You know, it's like, whatever, didn't really care. Okay, so it's like first the Fen West Coast downwinder, and then it was the doctor. And so I missed the start at the West Coast downwinder, but like 25 seconds, just like, oh, such an idiot. Cause I, I had trained so well that week. I was passing. Isn't that so the well. worst? Like you sort of, you think you know everything about racing. You've been racing oh, for like, I'll never miss start, never miss start. And the start goes, you're like, shit, I missed the start. <laughs> no, it, it totally. Cause I tell people like, I've written blog posts before about it, about like, if you want to be a serious racer, you might, you best line up with the person you want to race against, you know? So here I am like, you know, the biggest hypocrite missed the start by like 25 seconds. And against like, all you guys just paddling so well. I'm like, oh, it's over. I actually 
was very close to paddling back to shore. I was like, my race is over. Like I needed to, if I had any chance of racing you guys, I needed to be at the very least have a half boat length ahead of you when the race started, not like 25 seconds behind. So I contemplated going back to the car. But I was like, you know what? It's an all downwind race. There's no flat water. This should be my jam. Yeah. But I'm going to give this a go. And had an incredible race, actually. Um, yeah, you came through us in like that final stage. And you just went straight past. Then you just kept catching people. And I was like, wow. I know. Like just really like, was, I, the crazy thing, there was like 300 people. So I passed like 300 people. It was just, yeah. it, was a, it was a bizarre thing. Uh, one of the coolest race experiences of like starting that far back and actually like catching the top of the field. And, you know, I finished, I think it was like, a couple seconds behind Nikki Naughton in third. So I ended up fourth, but like yeah. a close, a close fourth and, you know, incredible athletes like yourself. I was just like super grateful to have such an incredible race. Um, and to, so I was like, Oh man, I am set. I am good to go. Like race out of the way. It looks like forecast for the doctor is going to be great. I can finally like shut everyone up that said my 2017 race was a fluke. Yeah. And, uh, and then come race day, um, we're traveling across to the doctor and the boat we're going in burns down. And I'm not, it's not hyperbole. The boat literally catches fire and shuts down like halfway across the channel. And I'm meanwhile just having this panic attack of like, I'm going to miss the start of the race. Like this is, and then I was thought about it later. I was like, I should have been thinking about, I'm going to, burned to death <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah because, no that was a crazy story i remember hearing that we yeah, were on um, we on tim bird's boat was it yeah they so they said that if the boat hadn't been so expensive and have a built-in self-regulating like system that sprayed anti-flame retardant over everything the boat right would have burnt in like 15 minutes like so yeah wow <laughs> Can't believe I was thinking about my race start. So how did you get to the race start? Because that was like halfway across, wasn't it? Yeah, so it was halfway across. And luckily, there were a lot of other people there. And I remember coming up to Sean Rice. And I was like, Sean, what do we do? And he's like, we got to get to the start. We're going to paddle there. And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> we're going to paddle 10K upwind to the start of a race that I were hoping to be competitive in? And he's like, well, we got to get there. And I was like, well, maybe you can, Sean. I certainly can. <laughs> yeah, that would have been a long day. Probably like 40K by the time you finish. Like, oh, man. So I was like, whatever. I was like, well, maybe if I draft behind Sean, I can save enough energy to actually race. So we had to like untie our boats and like throw them into the ocean and then dive in after them off the front of this yacht. Um, meanwhile, it was like, a, it was a weird situation because I felt like terribly selfish of like leaving this captain alone to burn to death on his beautiful boat he was driving us across in but I was like but I also have to get to this race and I was like what a terrible person am I to leave this person <laughs> to die to go you know to my race start so I was like terribly conflicted about the whole thing yeah oh it was yeah it was a very weird experience it was like interesting because going through this whole corona thing you I feel like I'm in the first 15 minutes of an apocalypse movie yeah. And you see a different side of people. And it was a very similar thing on this burning down boat, whereas you see uh, like a, the panic side of people, you know, where, where like stuff's hitting the fan and, you know, your life's on the line and you see a different 
you know, side people. come out. Yeah, you sort of see who, like, the leaders are, who the people take the control of the situation, who the people are Yeah, yeah. yeah, so yeah. It, was, uh, it was definitely a surreal experience. Ended up getting rescued by one of the, like, the safety boats who, like, ties a bunch of boats on, and we all pack in, and we, we go to the race start. But, oh, man, it's like some people handle that stuff really well. Like, Sean Rice goes on to have a great race, finishes third place, very tight third place. Yeah. Me, on the other hand, I come apart at the seams. I just, like, <laughs> I don't know. Just capitulate. Oh, man, I just, like, the whole, I, the whole thing rattles me. And I'm, like, already a pretty rattleable competitor you know i'm like i'm very set in my ways i need everything to be just so like i actually choose the races i do in the calendar year based on a lot of things but partially of like how well i know i can control the whole start scenario like i remember doing one race in sydney with you where we weren't allowed to warm up and you just had to like get on and go. And that freaked me out so much that I vowed I'd never do a race where I was going to be denied a warm up. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So you, so basically what you're saying there, you're used to having much of a routine. You like set yourself up, you have your plan, you have like your nutrition that you take, you have like, okay, I'm going to do this on the day. And then as soon as that changes, you actually really quite struggle with the change. Cause like, I know for myself, I've really, tried to make sure that with all my events like if anything changes i'm sweet like there's no problems like i've i've put myself in all those situations and I, i'm even when i go training if i forget my paddle i just paddle with something else if i like i'll paddle with something long if i like I'm, if i'm at training i pick up my water like there's no probs like all those different stuff like i'm sort of and you you you're sort of like the opposite where you like you have to have your routine it was interesting because i actually listening to your podcast with Corey. um yeah you talked about that, about how building in that unknown or kind of what the mess ups into your training was a big part of, of, of what like kind of you built your whole philosophy around. And that way you'd never be rattled on race day. And for me, I'm total opposite, which is looking back at it is something I certainly should have worked on. But instead I'm like, I, I planned in January what my day was going to look like for the doctor in, yeah. in end of November. So it's just a very, and partially I chose the races because they were the more organized and, and reliable structures that I could count on. But looking back at it, it was a, it was a terrible, it was a terrible choice on my part because I had like meals set up for the four hours before the race when I was there. And you know, the sunscreen that I was going to use and the amount of hydration. That I, and I had to leave all my, I remember Sean looked over at me as the boat was going down and I was force feeding myself the lunch that I was supposed to eat two hours, you know, from then. Just like, and he's like, what are you doing? I was like, I need these calories if I'm going to get across the doctor crossing. So it was just like, it was one of those things where, you know, the perfectly laid plan potentially is the worst plan to have. Um, yeah especially in a sport like surf ski. Um, so yeah, right. I think that's definitely something that I will change moving forward or try to build into my training of, of having a little more of the element of the unknown and being okay to roll with those punches because I mean, physically and condition wise, I was, everything was set up for me to have a race of my life. You know, the weekend before I had performed exceptionally well, certainly worthy of a podium performance and the conditions, as you know, were, you know, some of the best, possibly equal to 2017. 
So I had everything at my disposal to race really well. And the guy who I had been training with all week, I was staying with Nikki and we had been going back and forth in training, um, ends up getting second place. So it's like everything was there for me to. Yeah. So it's almost like you expended too much energy thinking about the problem that you're facing rather than just being like Sean is being cold. He's going, well, that's what's happened. Forget about it. Let's just move to the next thing. And like, I always say, but my, my, my thought process with racing is always have a plan, expect the plan to fail and then you wing it. And that's just like my sort of philosophy when I come to races. There's always, there's always a mess up. Like I know when I'm at events, like my sup doesn't turn up. Like, or I've got to drive out the night before, like uh, APP in London. I had to drive like two hours and I like to pick up my board, but then the guy was going to drive it up. His car broke down and then I had to drive out to get my board and then drive it back. And it's just like, and we'd only just got to London that day. So like I had to borrow a car, get my board brought up from Southampton, like, Oh. Meet up with the guy. The poor guy has a car crash on the, on the freeway. I have to go get my board from there. And it's just like this constantly happens. Like the world championships that I did last year in the ICF, my board just didn't arrive. So I'm like oh. texting people the night for my race, trying to find out a board that I can use from the girls' race. It's a star board so I can actually race because otherwise I can't. Like it's obviously conflicting with my if, my, if I have to use a different board. And it's just like, I'm just so used to that stuff happening now. So it's just, it's, yeah, it's inbuilt into my plan that the plan's going to fail. Oh. <laughs> Definitely. I need to take, you know, we maybe need to have some coaching sessions where you walk me through how to do that. But I am, I think it's like my neurotic personality that, that failed me in whitewater, I think uh, came to the forefront there. Um, And it's something that I, I think it really helps me because training by myself, I think like planning things out and being very particular helps when you don't have a training partner and you, and you've got to self motivate, but it's also, you know, like you say, when, shit hits the fan and you've got to go to plan F if you're, if you're a neurotic planner and you only want a to go down, it's, it's going to, it's going to throw you off. Yeah, It's definitely all about the mindset. And they always say like, it's like 50% physical and 50% mindset. And you've just got to be able to make sure that you can handle any situation that gets thrown your way. But, um, so you ended up finishing 10th in that race. Yeah. 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 So it wasn't, it was a complete disaster, but obviously, you could have been right up there with Nikki uh, going off what you're training and, and what your yeah. sort of plan was. It was probably just that, that incident that happened when you were going over probably threw you a lot. And yeah, you, yeah so I guess you just, as long as you learn from that situation and you next, no, next yeah, time no. like that happens, you, you, you know that you're okay. Well, maybe I need to not plan just for plan A. I've got B, C, D, E, F, G, you know, I've got all these. No, different- and that was another thing is like, I, I planned the week very particularly about my training and I ended up not doing the WA race week, which I think in retrospect was a big mistake. I think it took, would have taken a lot of pressure off the race if I had, you know, done the Tuesday and the Thursday race and the dash for cash. And, and instead I did like the race course on Wednesday. Um, and, uh, so it's just like a lot of those things that I think that like I heaped on extra pressure so that when, then when things went wrong, I just, you know, it was it like just a all mounted up. Yeah, yeah, I I find that too. I know with my racing, I always just try and do the races, and you're always just going into it, going, oh, I'm not sure how I'm going to go. But then a lot of the races that I've done in my past, I've actually done so much better than I expected to do because it wasn't part of my plan. So that's yeah. another thing that I've had, like with like with your plan A, like I this plan A, I'm like I'm gonna do one one race, yeah, and then I'm gonna have a month of training for this next one. But then I found that I was just racing every weekend. I became heaps better at racing and preparing to yeah. race and actually learning how to react in situations where it is stressful and it is pressure because you're just doing it all the time and then all the training doesn't doesn't necessarily matter as much it's all about how you, who performs best on the day when it actually counts totally 
And that, yeah. that gets back to the thing that I feel like is my biggest Achilles heel at the moment of, of the training partner and the frequency of racing. You know, I don't have yeah. a lot of really competitive domestic competitions here in the U.S. for surf ski and don't have a training partner. So it's just like you said, it's like you raced your Corey when you were training in surf ski and you had that very regular competition. And then, like you said, in SUP, you've – I mean, your schedule, I've looked at your schedule a couple of times. It's insane how much racing you do, but it, it's incredibly successful because you are the, the, as successful as you are racing all those races, which I feel like for many other people would make them implode, but you've managed to, to treat it in a way that you are able to bring your A game to those races, but also learn from them. It's, it's incredible to watch you perform on the world stage, man. And it's something you've learned when you're doing that many races. It's just like it, everything you do leading up to it doesn't really matter. The only thing that matters is as soon as that gun goes, you're on. So like, I try not to even think about the race before the race. Like I'm just like cruising around doing whatever, like having cats, like, like I don't really have like a planned breakfast or anything like that. So then because I'm in so many different cultures and different places, you can't actually eat necessarily what you normally eat. So I've, I've learned to be able to eat whatever I want and, and be able just to turn up. And as long as, as soon as that gun goes, I'm just on. So that, and then my whole race is just focused on what's happening in the race. But then before that, I don't use any energy on the race. There's no thought, thought process about the race. Like I've been in those situations before. I have a vague idea of what I want to do, but there's never really a plan. There's a, an idea that I might have in my head, but the plan constantly is changing depending on what's happening around me, especially when you're doing that, that group style racing, which is a lot of the racing that we do in stand-up, um, especially in the flat water and in the, in the canals and all that sort of stuff. But then you just, you just manage it the way that, you, way that people are reacting around you or different conditions or different scenarios. So you never really know what to focus on. So that's why I never really put too much energy into a race plan because the race plan just changes like every yeah. second minute. Like you have someone like comes up and you're like, I expect him to be here, but cool. He's here now. Let's, let's race him, you know? Yeah. So that's been a really cool thing that I've learned. So now going forward, like we've got this COVID-19 thing. I think it's hard <laughs> not to speak about. It's just ruining everybody's lives. How is it in, in America at the moment? Uh, it's, I mean, for anyone who's watched the news for the U S it's where we haven't been handling it the best and it's, and it's, it's really getting pretty serious here. So for me in California, we've been on uh, rest in place or essentially stay in your home. Don't leave unless you have an essential job um, for two weeks now. And, and there's really, there's not a definitive end in sight. Some people say end of April, some people say end of May. So it's been complete lockdown right now. It is punishable with six months in jail if I get on the water. So I haven't been paddling. Um, Just crazy. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty hectic here in the U.S. and uh, we're all trying to do our part to, to stay at home and, and to kind of slow the spread of the virus. Um, but it's, uh, it's crazy times and it's certainly not a great time to be an athlete. <laughs> no, that's, that's for sure. I think, it's, I think I guess your journey has probably helped you deal with these sort of different circumstances, like having things just taken away from you or you've stopped things altogether and you moved on to yeah. different things. So what are you trying to do at the moment? Like, are you able to work? Are you, are you trying different things? Like, what, what are, how are you handling the situation? Yeah, so super lucky that I'm still employed. So I still go to work and I get to work with Emily, who's now working from home, which has been awesome. So Emily's my wife for any yep. of the viewers who don't know. And by the way, if you've made it this far, congratulations. Yep. I've droned on for quite some time here. But uh, yeah, so it's, I kind of went through a week of, I think everyone kind of did where everything got canceled and you're just like, 
what am I training for? Like, what am I doing? Like, what's the, what's the purpose? What's the point? You know, I, I really thrive on goal setting. Um, especially with, you know, with some of the more solo training that I've been doing, it's, uh, it just, it really drives me and, and gets me fired up to, you know, beat the clock or beat myself from last time. So when the first, all the races were canceled and it, we realized that there may not be any races in 2020, I, I went through a week of struggle and then kind of picked myself up and was like, you know, I do, I'm still chasing that, uh, that international win. I would love for that to, to be, to come at some point in the next um, few years of my career. And so I just got to do what I can to, to kind of, if not enhance my fitness on the water, make sure I don't lose it. So I'm really lucky to have an erg. Um, so I've been, yeah. I've been handling like a session a day on the erg. I find that I can't, do more than one session on the erg. Um, yeah, it'd be a bit monotonous. But if you got the booth cast to do now, so it'd be so much more Yeah, man, just you. listen, just plug away. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I've been doing like one session a day, and it's actually I've been really loving uh, the erg, ironically. I mean, I miss the water a lot, um, but I, I really love the, the kind of – you get to race. It's like having a, a partner there because you have, you know, your last time trial. So it's like you're lining up for the 5K time trial. I know what I got last week. I've got to try to get that same time. So it's, it's, it's fun in that respect to have so much data at your fingertips. Uh, yeah. Well, it's cool how you're approaching the whole situation. Like I know I had the same sort of weak mentality. I was just like crushed. And then obviously you go up and down, you have good days and bad days, yeah. but I think it's, it's, it's such a different circumstance that we're all living in and we're all dealing with it differently. But I've found that sport and just doing like even 30 minutes of activity every day, I, I felt like I feel better. Like even just going for a 30 minute run yesterday, like last night, I like just, just kick start you and you're like, ah, oh, I could do so many things again, you know? Like it was just, it's oh, quite totally. amazing. Yeah, yeah and so. it, also, it breaks up the day, you know? It's like just to be working at the desk all day or, you know, I'm taking some online courses just to, you know, to do things, to learn different things. And so it's like you can sit at the desk all day, but to like break it up with like a hard paddle where you're challenging yourself in the middle or, you know, whether it's a body weight workout or you get to go out your front door and run or for the luckier people who are still able to get on the water, you know, challenge yourself and get your heart rate up. And, uh, you know, it brings a lot. There's a reason we do it beyond just the racing, I feel like. So. And I feel like we're related to that a lot more. I know I've heard in the past, like, cause I've always been a goal setter and very, very um, race driven and all that sort of thing. Now actually having the opportunity to do activity outside of a goal, it's, it's quite a, quite a weird experience to start with, but then you're like, I actually just, I need to do it. And you, and you hear, I feel like a lot of the older guys who paddle like 40s, 50s, 60s, who don't really do it for the racing, they do it for the community or they do it for like mental health it really does help you like really just narrows your focus for that hour or whatever that you're doing the sport and actually goes, okay, well the world isn't that bad. I can still yeah. do sport. I can still get out there and chase goals and let's see. Yeah. Yeah. I can still paddle, but like I might not be able to paddle, but it just, it is like, uh, well, they no, you're talking absolutely about. right. You're absolutely and be, being able to get out, out of your house and go for a run and, and challenge yourself on something totally new. You're, you're a hundred percent right. And I, I think that it's, uh, there certainly are silver linings in this if you look for them. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Austin, I really appreciate your time today. It's been an awesome chat. We've covered a lot of bases and um, yeah, stoked to have your time. Yeah, man. Thank you so much for having me on the, the booth cast. And it's been, it's been a real honor. And uh, I appreciate you taking the time to, uh, to ask me your sweet questions.
Thanks, man. And uh, um, everyone out there following the Boothcast, being stoked with everyone's support, like, share, comment, follow. Um, please let me know what you think of the podcast and we can make it bigger and better as we go forward. Um, today's Boothcast was brought to you by Booth Training, uh, your one-stop shop for paddling um, training. And if you want to subscribe um, to the podcast, you can check on iTunes, Spotify, or any of other ones of your favorite podcast channels. You can also find it on Michael Booth on Facebook and there's a section there called Boothcast. Um, thanks again, Austin, for your time and I will talk to you shortly. All right. Later, man. Thanks, man.